quick announcements before we pray. Um, as Pastor Keith mentioned for us, there will be grace marriage signups. It's not today, but if you're interested in that, you can take advantage of the next three weeks. That'll be available in the lobby, and you can get signed up. If you're already in a grace marriage group, there's no, there's no need to sign up again for that. But if you are not currently one but would like to try it out in 2020, we encourage you to do that. Also, our sister Rachel Lynn will be available the next three Sundays for new family or single individual pictures for our church directory. If you have a picture that you want to already have and use in the directory, that's fine, but Rachel will be available the next three Sundays before or after the service to grab your picture if you'd like to get make that happen. That would be great as well. And uh, um, we can look forward to uh, the Lord's Supper tonight. Um, we'll be gathering again this evening at 5 p.m. to celebrate Christ's death and uh, honor that as well. And so let's uh, pray together, and then we're going to get into Exodus 20, verse 13 this morning. Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful that you have spoken, and you have not left us in the dark. You haven't left us to figure out life on our own, but you have spoken, you have revealed yourself, you have told us this is the way, walk in it. And we thank you for speaking to us. We acknowledge first and foremost that when you speak to us, um, it, we, we stand guilty before you because we recognize that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And we thank you that you have provided that in Jesus Christ for all those who trust in him, who look to him, who collapse completely on him in faith. And so we do that again this morning. Jesus, we look to you to be our teacher. Teacher, speak to us. Holy Spirit, counsel us. Father, glorify yourself in helping us and changing us by your Spirit. Through Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, we are making our way through the uh, commandments, the Ten Commandments, and we, we paused in our journey through the book of Exodus to consider these ten words that were spoken by God on the mountain to the people of Israel. And we come to the Sixth Commandment this morning. Al Mohler, writing about the Sixth Commandment, says, Preachers have difficulty with this particular commandment because the other nine commands seem to be so universally applicable to human temptations and to human realities. But when we look at you shall not murder, it's easy to think ourselves distant from this particular commandment. It's very easy to abstract this commandment so it no longer has its bite, the kind of command and sense of authority and immediate address as the other nine do. How many murderers are there in our midst? And yet, there is no question that this commandment is addressed to us. The 20th century left a lot of memories, and among them were memories of murder that will never be forgotten. Under the regimes of Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, an estimated 175 million human lives were unlawfully taken. That figure exceeds the population of the United Kingdom and France combined, and it approaches two-thirds of the population of the United States at the end of the 1900s. New words like genocide were invented in the last 100 years to try to give us categories that we hadn't had before, categories for the horrors of the gulags, the Holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, and the slaughter that existed in Rwanda and the Sudan. And even in the 21st century, whether it be in the growth of homicide, we are living in an age, as really every age is, this side of Genesis 3, an age of violence. 
Violent death is a leading story on the nightly news. We've seen an uptick in recent months in mass shootings. There's also murder on the large and small screen. One reporter said that by the age of 18, the average American child has seen more than 80,000 murders take place. Most of them, of course, depicted on television, film, and in video games. Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, who taught marksmanship for the U.S. Army, was asked the reason why so many young boys who had never fired a gun could walk into a high school and kill with such accuracy. His answer, video games helped give these children an instinct for a trigger and an eye for a target that was unlike anything any military force had done before. Evidently, Call of Duty was doing way more for training killers with military precision than the, Army, than the U.S. Army ever hoped to do. We must also acknowledge the widespread culture of death that's represented by abortion on demand. It's now a routine medical procedure, so-called under the moral logic of personal autonomy and women's right to choose. We also live surrounded by millions of frozen human embryos sitting in clinics, which will eventually be destroyed either by passive allowance or active malice. We are also facing issues surrounding euthanasia and end-of-life decisions where we as a society are beginning to decide which lives are worthy of life and which lives aren't. God alone is the Lord of life, brothers and sisters, and he alone has the right to determine when it's time for someone to die. Phil Riken said, The difficulty is that now we have the capacity to keep a body functioning long after that time has come. Although we always have a duty to provide basic nourishment, we do not always have a duty to provide extraordinary measures such as artificial respiration. There is a legitimate moral distinction between killing and allowing someone who is terminally ill to die. In other words, there is a difference between terminating life, which is never permissible, and terminating treatment, which can be a way of turning life back to God's hands. By this, calls for constant vigilance because many people, including many health professionals, don't know the difference and those they often and they often cross the line that should never be crossed, end quote. In addition to homicide and abortion and euthanasia, we also must acknowledge the growth of suicide. In an article published in Time magazine earlier this year, there were statistics given in 2017 that 14 out of every 100,000 Americans died by suicide, according to an analysis released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics. That's a 33% increase in 20 years and the highest age-adjusted suicide rate recorded in the U.S. since the end of World War II. And as we know, friends, simply put, God has not given us the right to kill ourselves. While by no means is it the unpardonable sin or something that cannot be forgiven, nevertheless, to commit suicide is self-murder, and it is to claim lordship over our own lives. So, ironically, this is very, very appropriate. It's a, we're living in an age where murder is an ever-increasing, ever-growing reality, and so we must wrestle with it through the Bible, and that's what we're planning to do this morning. Four points in the sermon. We're, first of all, going to look at the problem with murder. Second, the prohibition against murder. Third, the prevalence of murder. And fourth, the provision for murderers. Number one, the problem with murder. Why, this is the place to start. Why is murder wrong? Oftentimes, we don't go down that deep. We just 
considered on the surface level. If you go up and talk to a hundred out of a hundred people in Owensboro, you would find a hundred people that would agree that murder is wrong. If you ask them why, though, they might have different answers. They might say something like, well, it's just not right. Well, why not? Well, it's not a very nice thing to do. We should treat each other like we want to be treated. That's true. There's biblical precedent for that. They might even go a bit further and say, well, if our society is really going to function the way a society is meant to function, that is, if we're to feel safe and flourish as human beings, then we can't just go around killing each other. We have to be protected from that. But when it comes down to it, most people would defend the rightness of this command by some form of utilitarian ethics. It's just the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. But that's not the way the Bible handles it. Why is murder wrong? Well, it's not just because that's the way that things work best, but it's because God himself has defined the terms by which human, val human life is valued. Who decides whether a person's life is worth protecting? Who's to say that your life being snuffed out wouldn't make the world a better place? Most people think about this commandment in a very functional way, if they think about it at all. But as Christians, we understand that the inherent worth and dignity of every human being is the foundation upon which this commandment rests. And it is the fact that man is made in the image of God. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 9 and look at verse 6 as Moses underscores why, in fact, murder is wrong. And notice what he roots it in. It's not rooted in just society's pleasantries or flourishing, but rather in the image of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, there's murder, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So the commandment rests upon man being made in the image of God. Kevin DeYoung commenting says, it's because the inherent worth and value of the image of God is present in each of us, yes, marred by the fall, but nevertheless still present, it's that reason that murder is wrong. No matter a person's race or ethnicity, how they vote, their health or disabilities, their age or infirmities, or whether they are bothersome to you, every person in your life has inherent worth and dignity since they are created in the image of God. Only with biblical anthropology, that is a biblical understanding of mankind, can the commandment to not murder be based on something deeper than utilitarianism. Only then can it be more than simply good advice on how we care for one another and be something truly rooted in an inalienable right, end quote. Friends, murder is wrong because mankind is God's image. That's the problem with murder. And therefore, to take the life of an image bearer is to insult God. That's why murder is wrong. Al Mohler commenting on this reality says, Murder is an insult to God. Murder deprives God of one who was made in his image and for his glory. Murder is the arrogant, willful subtraction of God's glory from the earth and the capacity for the display of God's glory in the midst of his creation. 
Although that would be true of a ravaging forest, burning a garden, or desecrating nature, far more when the one who is killed bears the image of God. It is a personal attack on the dignity of the Creator. The murderer becomes the taker of the gift of life. They become the image destroyer. So friends, that's why murder is such a problem. Because it destroys the image of God. And as a result, it deprives God of glory. Because we as human beings are uniquely made by God to reflect and represent Him in the earth, even those who do so in a fallen state are worthy of protection, dignity, and value because they're made in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are outside of Christ still bear the image of God. Every single person does. We are either a broken mirror or a mirror being polished, but we are a mirror nonetheless. And therefore, we have dignity and value on the basis of God's creatorship of us. That we are God's creatures made in His image. And that is the reason murder is such a problem. Are the other reasons murder is a problem legitimate? Absolutely. It's just not the deepest reason. The deepest reason is because God's image is tied to us. Number two, the prohibition against murder. First of all, let's talk about what is not prohibited in this command from God to the people of Israel. Some older translations, especially the King James Bible, which is a good translation and fine, but um, have rendered this phrase, thou shalt not kill or don't kill. And sometimes that can be confusing because it's clear from this passage, as we'll see in a second, that God does not forbid killing of any kind whatsoever. In fact, the word should be translated and is more rac- rightly rendered murder. Murder is what is after what we're after here, which we're going to talk about in a moment, what it means. But for right now, what is not prohibited is clearly at least four things. Let me give you four things that are not prohibited by this command not to murder. First of all, the killing of animals for food and clothing or the wise management of earth's resources is not forbidden in this command. Now, the Bible does, for sure, condemn unnecessary cruelty to animals and would see that as a great sin. But nevertheless, the killing of animals for food or clothing or the wise management of earth's resources is not what's being forbidden in this command. Secondly, the infliction of death by civil government as legal punishment for certain heinous crimes is not forbidden. We saw that already in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. In fact, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 grounds capital punishment in the reality of the image of God. Turn with me back to Exodus. We'll be in Exodus a little bit more this morning as we look at a few examples here. But Exodus 21 lays out this reality as well. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 17. We read this these verses last week, I won't read them again, but remember they were concerning how to treat one who dishonors father and mother. What was to happen to that stubborn, rebellious son? He was to be capitally punished within the people of Israel. So by, 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 by clear implication, infliction of death as a penalty for sin under the old covenant was not by no means a violation of the commandment not to murder. The death penalty is required, after all, under the Old Covenant for those who even break this command to not murder. Also, killing in just war is not prohibited under the commandment, the Sixth Commandment, to not murder. If you will, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and look at verses 10, beginning at verse 10. Deuteronomy 20, 
beginning at verse 10. Now, each one of these points opens up a whole other sermon that I'm not going to talk about this morning. I mean, we could have whole sermons on lawful killing and infliction of capital punishment and just war and all that, so I'm not getting into any of that this morning. We don't have time to do it, but Deuteronomy chapter 20 does point forward to the reality that just as God commanded the people of Israel under the old covenant to engage in war from time to time, it was done justly. Look at verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peacefully and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So you see it's a response to an initiated attack. Peace terms are offered first. When peace terms are not taken, but retaliation is enacted, God says you may engage in war. Verse 13, when the Lord your God gives you into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones and the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Notice the justice that's to characterize the war. Innocent victims are not to be taken. Soldiers are to be engaged. Verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So there he gives instruction about what, he specific, what God is specifically commanding to be done to wicked cities as just punishment for their abomination. And he's going to use the people of Israel under the old covenant to bring about that. And then finally, self-defense, when there is no other way of escaping danger, is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Again, back in Exodus 22, we see God's provision for this. Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3 If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So you notice in verse 2 that if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for the one who did it in self-defense. If there are other ways, if there are no other ways of escaping the danger. So that is what is not prohibited um, in the sixth commandment. So what does the sixth commandment prohibit then? Three things. It obviously prohibits premeditated intentional murder. This Hebrew word for murder is used multiple times in the Old Testament and every instance but one it speaks of one human being killing another human being. Most often, it alludes to planned or premeditated murder in the form of revenge. And brothers and sisters, this also would include being an accessory to murder. That is someone who was nevertheless involved but may not have pulled the trigger, so to speak. For instance, think of David and Uriah. Remember when David had sinned with Bathsheba, she became pregnant, he's trying to cover it up. He arranges for her husband to be killed. And as a result, he is an accessory to murder. 
he is responsible and held responsible for that because he was behind the action, even though he hired the hitman, so to speak, even though he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger, but God held him responsible for murder of Uriah. Similarly, Pilate with Jesus. Pilate is held responsible for sentencing Jesus to death, even though he was not the one who nailed him to the cross. So being an accessory to murder is also included in this. Also included is voluntary manslaughter, which is intentional but unpremeditated, and involuntary manslaughter, like in a modern sense, a drunk driving accident. Also is included negligent homicide. Look at Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. So the idea here is negligent homicide. That is, if you got a crazy ox that just all of a sudden breaks out and kills somebody but has never had a history of doing that before, well, the ox is held responsible but not the owner. But if the ox has been shown to do that in the past and the owner has done nothing about it and it gores a person to death, then that person is guilty of murder as a result of negligent homicide. There's also commands in Scripture about the way the houses were to be formed. Remember that around the parapet of the house or the rim of the house. Because roofs were, not u- were used often as gathering places, that if a roof was not well taken care of or an, or an edge was not sufficient and someone fell off because of a homeowner's negligence to build the roof correctly, then that person could be liable for negligent homicide. So in summary, this command deals with the unjust taking of legally innocent life. The unjust taking of legally innocent life. It prohibits killing or causing to be killed by direct action or by indirect action any legally innocent person. It applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, or negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. Number three, the prevalence of murder. As we come to the New Testament, though, we're going to see our Lord Jesus press the responsibility of murder down into our own hearts and leave all of us guilty of such a, while maybe not the physical act itself, nevertheless, the seed forms that live in our own heart. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and see what our Savior says about this command. Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 21 and 22. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's absolutely true. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus 
ups the ante here quite a bit in showing us the true roots of murder. That murder as a physical act originates in the human heart, an angry, sinful, selfish human heart. And so Jesus says, much like he does with other commandments in the law, that the true purpose of this law is not to just forbid the outward expressions of murder, the physical act itself, but actually the spiritual condition that gives rise to it. Notice verse 22, Jesus puts anger with our brothers and sisters, insulting our brothers and sisters, and calling them names in the same category as murder. So he puts hostile, contemptuous speech in the same category as physical murder, albeit they're different sins, they're treated differently, but nonetheless, they are seen as originating in the same kind of heart. So hostile, contemptuous speech would include words expressing contempt for another person or words of uncontrolled anger that use the tongue like a whip or a sword to lash out and wound someone verbally. It's not just an issue of taking life by a knife or a stone or a club or a gun, but by a tongue. It's an anger and hatred spoken. Kevin DeYoung, commenting on this, says, Anger is one of those respectable sins. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Granted, not all anger is sin, think Jesus in the temple. It is possible to be angry and not sin, Ephesians 4.26, but honestly, that doesn't describe most of our anger. Sinful anger is anger directed at the wrong person, motivated by the wrong reasons, and out of proportion to the offense. Sadly, this is a truer description of our anger. We take our rage out on other people, get upset for less than noble purposes, and blow up over minor hurts and slight inconveniences. We get grumpy with checkout clerks, snap at tech support over the phone, hold grudges against our spouse, spew venom when sports don't go our way, wish the worst on our enemies, and cherish thoughts of revenge toward those who hurt us. We have an anger problem. And we don't just get frustrated or get our buttons pushed. People don't make us angry or make us lose our cool. We are angry. Anger, whatever else may stir it up, comes from an angry heart. And this is no small problem. Anger gives opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. Hatred is considered murder, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, 1 John 3.15. Strife, fits of anger, and dissensions are works of the flesh, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, Galatians 5.19-21. DeYoung continues, I'm all for passion and righteous indignation. I want people who hate injustice and despise falsehood, but I don't want a church full of mean, angry people. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. If we only love those who love us, what reward do we have? Do not the tax collectors even do the same? We can talk about murder and the sins of others, but if we do not love our neighbors, even those who get their theology all wrong and those who annoy us to no end, we have not been transformed by the Spirit of Jesus and we have not truly understood the sixth commandment. So, the young puts it in a category altogether different than just physical murder. He puts it in the categories of Jesus, namely anger. Brothers and sisters, we murder others when we gossip, when we bear grudges, when we slander, when we lose our temper, when we neglect those whom we ought to honor, when we show spite, when we exhibit jealousy. All these are guilty of murder. Are you a murderer? 
Do you ever say anything to hurt someone? Do you ever take secret satisfaction in their misfortune? Do you have someone you're out to get? Do you want to make somebody pay for what they've done? Do you ever get so angry that you lose control? Have you ever harbored violent thoughts or plotted or imagined another's downfall, whether or not you ever acted on them? If this is characteristic of your life on the basis of Jesus, you will go to hell. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is clearly what Jesus says. Notice what he says again in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Romans 1.29 fills out this portrait. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. So Jesus, or Paul, puts that all in the category of, of including murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, envy, gossip, evil, covetousness. 1 Timothy 1.9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James puts murder in the same category as coveting and not obtaining and therefore fighting and quarreling about it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, We should not be like Cain, John says to us, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So hatred, anger toward brothers, neighbors, sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, neighbors, friends, family, anyone is category, it puts us in the category of murder. Now, I want to include one other category here that I don't often think gets thought about that much, and that is evangelism. Think about this. I was reading an article this week by Greg Morse at DesiringGod.org, and he says, the title of the article is, We Murder with Words Unsaid. And he opens with this gripping illustration of, a, of, a, of an opportunity he had to speak with a friend of his who had recently become a Christian. And he didn't realize that Greg, at the time, was a Christian as well. And he looked at Greg and he said, You knew and you didn't say anything? Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about that. When we know what we ought to say and we don't say it, especially in an evangelistic opportunity where we have the opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever or someone we don't know where they stand with the Lord, Charles Spurgeon calls that soul murder. Here's what he says. Ho, ho, sir, surgeon, you are too delicate to tell the man he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without their knowing it. You therefore flatter them. And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awaken hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, 
We will not. This is similar to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Paul, the mighty apostle of justification by faith, spoke the same culpability for silence when he said in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So how was Paul able to be, have a clean conscience? Because he did not shrink from declaring them all that God would have him say. So, brothers and sisters, let's be faithful to speak the gospel. Let's not be among those who, in our families and in our workplaces and among our friends, who come to Christ later on and find out we were a Christian all those years, and yet we had never spoken a word. Let us not be those. Sometimes all it takes to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The priests and the Levite were guilty of bloodshed, not because they actively beat up the Samaritan and left him for dead, but because they didn't help him. The man was on the side of the road hurt, and they were too religious and too wanting to honor God, they would think, to do anything to help. And by not, not acting, they were complicit in the very violence that was done to the man. Brothers and sisters, I hope, like you, as you sit under God's searching word, that you find yourself here at the end of this sermon saying, my goodness, I never thought about that. Is there any hope for a sinner like me? There is. There is. There's hope for sinners like all of us. All of us stand justly condemned under God's law. All of us, when the searching light of the scriptures is brought to bear on our consciences, we feel ourselves to be defiled and unclean and in need of grace. And God has made grace available to us. Brothers and sisters, we have a provision for murderers. Point number four. We've looked at the problem with murder. We've looked at the prohibition against murder, the prevalence of murder. Now let's look at the provision for murderers. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stood up and preached a sermon. It was essentially a gospel explanation of Psalm 16, where he preached Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He told the people that they were, that Jesus had been offered up to, on the cross by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But in verse 23, he also tells them this. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he is looking at this crowd and he's saying, you are all accessories to his murder. You didn't nail him to the cross, but you permitted him to go to the cross and you said nothing. You did nothing. And they recognized this. They recognized that they had in fact killed the Son of God. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you. Aren't you glad he didn't say, sorry, nothing you can do? Nothing you can do. That stinks. Wish it wouldn't have happened. But no, he said, gives them good news. He says, turn, turn from your sin. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing provision for murderers. <laughs> you know, brothers and sisters, we have to realize that it was our sin that put him there. We were accessories to the murder of the Son of God. And if we don't reckon with that, if we don't value that, if we don't stare that right in the eye and let it search us and look us down, then we won't really appreciate the cross. As John Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. The cross was done by us before the cross was done for us. And the good news is this. Jesus was murdered so that murderers could be forgiven. Think about it. In Luke 23, verse 34, he offered forgiveness to the very people who murdered him. He's, withhold, he's not withholding forgiveness from those who are murdering him. He's offering forgiveness to those who are murdering him. And the one who is writing the words of Exodus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses was a murderer. Remember Exodus chapter 2, when he unlawfully took the life of that Egyptian? God took a murderer and raised him up as a leader of the people of Israel. God took another one named Saul of Tarsus and made him the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. If the worst thing we could do, namely murder God's son, if that sin can be forgiven, how can anything else not be forgiven? And in fact, God is not just pleased to forgive murderers, he makes missionaries and leaders out of them. That's the grace of God. Murder, far from disqualifying someone from the kingdom of God, makes them a candidate for a leader in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean the murder was not a sin. It doesn't mean the murder wasn't worth It cost the Son of God his death. But it does not stop the invincible grace of God. And through Christ's murder, we are brought to life because he was brought back to life. According to Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus is the Lord of life, and we honor him as our life by repenting, of our anger and our hatred by fleeing to Christ as the only one who can deliver us and save us and by thanking him that through his work on the cross though we were guilty of his murder he said to us father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and he did praise his name let's pray father we are grateful to you though it's not fun it's a good thing to have your word search us and to come to the end of our ropes and our wits and our resources. For it's only in those times that we abandon ourselves to you, the only God who can part the Red Sea, the only warrior who can overthrow armies, the only hero who can cause Goliath to fall with a pebble, the provider who showers manna in the wilderness, the God who raises a dead man for the salvation of the world and his people and the transformation of the entire cosmos. Jesus, we abandon ourselves to you today. Thank you that though we murdered you, that you live evermore. 
to make intercession for us. You are that dead man who now lives. You are the ruler of the kings of the earth. You're our perpetual intercessor, our perfect righteousness, and the maker of all things new. We can fully hope in your unfailing love for every other love fails, including our own. There is no other supply that's sufficient for our need. There's no other strength sufficient for the task. There's no other balm sufficient for our wounds. There's no other rest sufficient for our weariness. And there's no other grace sufficient for our insufficiency. Thank you for all that you've done on the cross to forgive guilty sinners like us. And not just to forgive us, but to reinstate us in your family, to clothe us with your righteousness, and to give us a place in your kingdom to serve and love and follow you and be pleasing to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.